until you really dissect that dynamic of, of a child victim involved in prostitution, especially one who's pimp-controlled. Only then will you really understand all the aspects of exploitation, vulnerability, and manipulation going on. I think in general, the adults around me weren't paying attention, or they weren't really equipped to pay attention, to know what to look for if something was not going right. Fifth grade was a time frame that was sad and lonely, and it was very sad during fifth grade. And I met this girl. She became my best friend. Kelly was fun, and she was funny, and she was outgoing. I wanted to be just like Kelly. So I dressed like Kelly. I acted like Kelly. I really became pretty obsessed with being with Kelly. Seventh and eighth grade, Kelly started to get new friends. That's when I started to get very stressed out. I started to go through depression and um, anxiety and, and all kinds of things, and I was a complete wreck by the end of eighth grade. And that's when I met my trafficker at the mall. There was this guy staring at me. He motioned for me to come over to him. I think that while traffickers or pimps will go to a mall and target any young female or young male, whoever they're used to preying upon, it is a certain type of girl that he's looking for within that group. And I was that kind of girl that he was looking for. He started calling me that night. He didn't come on strong, like sexually or pushing me to run away. He was just like a friend. What I didn't know at that time was that the person that I had been talking to for the past two weeks was a completely different man from the guy at the mall. He was very withdrawn and authoritative. I was very nervous around him and I thought I had done something wrong. Never did I think it was a completely different person. I thought that I had run away wrong. So from there, this guy took me to a motel. He said he had to go over the rules with me. And he said things like, I have to take $200 an hour. He gave me a new name, a new birthday. And he was throwing all this information at me very quickly. And he wasn't asking me how I felt, like, are you okay with this? Is this what I signed up for? No, he was telling me what I was going to do now. From a very early age, back to the early childhood sexual abuse, I learned to be complacent to those around me, to sort of deal with what was happening to me. I never learned to fight. I think things could have been easier sooner with the right treatment. In the United States, on average, every two minutes, a child is bought or sold for sex. The average age of a child sold for sex is 13 years old. Human trafficking is the second fastest growing criminal industry just behind drug trafficking. Hi, and welcome to Mid-South Viewpoint. I'm Byron Tyler. Today, we talk about human trafficking the horror of this industry and what it's doing to our children, what it's doing to women, what it's doing to men, what it's doing to humans. Hope you'll stay tuned. Hang on for the ride, because we're going to talk about some very serious things, but something that you need to know about. January is National Slavery and Human Trafficking Prevention Month. Some friends from RestoreCorps, AIDS Victims and Trafficking. Rachel Haga is here, and Rachel's been on the program before, and she brings with us Morgan Wright. Morgan, how are you yes, doing? I'm good. Rachel, good to have you back. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for reaching out. Has it been a couple of years? I was trying to think the last think time we so. got together. Probably 2017, as we were preparing an event alongside now Accessible Hope International and Orphano, some of your other yes. uh, partners across the city. Exactly. 
You also, by profession, have worked in the food industry for a number of years. Do you still do that? Kind of. Not so much in COVID-19. Yes, I've been employed at Huey's, one of, of course, Memphis local favorites for now, actually, as of this month, 18 years. Congratulations. Um, and That's a lot of burgers. It is a lot of burgers. <laughs> it's a whole lot of burgers. There was a, a few sabbaticals, so to speak, during that time when I was a missionary in Southeast Asia. But for the most part, I've somehow been on the roster over at Huey's for quite some time. Hats off to Huey's and all of our local Memphis business establishments. Mm-hmm. Buy local, eat local, even Absolutely. with the COVID. Even if you do curbside, come on, folks, let's keep these businesses going. Let's yes. buy. Right, Morgan? Yes, I agree. Are you in the same line of work? I'm not. I uh, I am employed at Restore Corps. I've been here for a year and a half now. I'm from Louisiana. What part of Louisiana? I'm from New Orleans, lived in Baton Rouge after Katrina. And then my husband and I, we moved to Maryland in 2016, and we lived there for three years. There's no Cajun food in Maryland? No, none, (laughs) none. The weather, all of it, it's nothing, nothing compared to Louisiana. And then 2019, I moved to Memphis. Yeah, I've been here since. Tell me how you found out about RestoreCorps. Yeah. So we wanted to move back down south, be closer to family and friends and wanted to be around a community of people. My husband got in contact with Life Church. He was able to grab a job there. And then in that process, I got in contact with Kara, one of our former employees here at Restore Corps, and she connected me with Rachel and our director of survivor services. And so that's how it happened. I've done human trafficking work for the past eight years. And so I thought that was just such a cool fit for me, not knowing what I was going to do. My husband was lined up, but I didn't have anything. That's how it all happened. Is your husband one of the staff pastors at Life Church, or He's not a pastor. He works in outreach. A very important part of the work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Rachel, you've got help now. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I'm more grateful than, than we have words for. And also, I feel just encouraged that you actually, even in your proclamation to that reality, know that growth time. You've seen that growth over time. I remember in the early days of you sharing, it was just you, basically, you Mm -hmm. know, getting calls all times of the night. And I'm sure that hasn't stopped. I imagine that part of the work continues. But you have this incredible website now. I don't know you had back then for Restore Core. Probably not. (laughs) But there's been an evolution of this ministry. You kind of want to back up a little bit and talk about the history for a second? Absolutely. I think that's an incredible way to dialogue for this year in particular, as you noted. For those first few years, it was just myself and a few other uh, team members who we were all operating kind of in that bivocational life of, as, as we've already covered, I was at Huey's, and then there's other volunteers that were with us on our volunteer crew fighting trafficking who were either master students at UT Health and Sciences, they were employed at other organizations around town, but just knew that this niche of people were still underserved in our community. One of our first volunteers there uh, that composed our volunteer team was a grad student at Memphis Law. And so it was this evolution of this um, impassioned people who had seen this injustice, actually for that core four, so to speak, We'd seen it um, mostly in international environments, myself in Cambodia, one of our other partners in Nepal, one of our other partners um, on the Mexico-Texas border, and one of the other volunteers in the Eastern Bloc countries around Russia. So living in these different places internationally and even nationally gave us a picture of what human trafficking 
is somewhere else. And then somehow by God's grace, we found each other in those first few years to figure out how to respond to that knowledge here locally. And so um, honestly, yes, the, the calls still come uh, all hours of the night, but now there is a team. And I think that that's one thing that I've been reflecting on a lot because I'm, I moved back to the States in 2010. I returned from Southeast Asia, living in Cambodia as a missionary for about three years. Moving back to the States and now 10 years later, I can look around at our staff meetings, sadly, at this particular season on Zoom and see this screen of abolitionists, really, like our team is actually over 20 people now. And so not only do we have those 24 hour phone calls still coming, but Mm -hmm. by God's sweet grace, I'm I'm not the only one Mm -hmm. answering. Uh, For that matter, I'm not sure I could tell you the last time that I had to answer Mm -hmm. it because we have incredible Mm -hmm. staff members that are like Morgan. And come with their history, their vision, and just a sight to see themselves leverage their talents and their skills to fight for the victims of trafficking in our community. It's estimated that 30.2 million people live in slavery in the world today. And I even saw a number, a stat on another website that said over 40 million people mm-hmm. are in that category. It seems like such a, an incredible feat to defeat human trafficking, you know? It looks like an overwhelming task. So why tackle such a big, brutal business? I would probably argue why not. Right. Um, I think that not only biblically, you even mentioned it in your prayer before we started, that we are every single day going out into the world trying to war against the enemy. But we are really just individually finding our own way to be obedient to the call in Scripture to ransom the captive. And so what does that look like for me today? Me personally, that obviously looks different than another person Mm -hmm. walking down the street or anyone else parked in this parking lot today. But if we claim Christ, um, if we claim ourselves to be along uh, along the side of the the church, then we have to figure that Mm -hmm. out. There's a quote in our team that I try to repeat pretty often as revelation requires response. And so as Morgan already mentioned, she began in this work eight years ago, not in Memphis, but when Mm -hmm. she returned to Memphis or when she moved here. She was still compelled, even before she knew that that might have been one of the idioms that I would repeat to her over the the year and a half to come. But she had that conviction Mm -hmm. of, now I know what it looks like. How do I take the be obedient to seeing it in Baton Rouge, seeing it in in Maryland? And then how do I do that in Memphis? And I I would probably even argue, too, is there's another book around this subject. It's called The Good News About Injustice by Mm -hmm. Gary Haugen. And the good news is that the Lord wars against injustice. Yeah. Yes. And so we, when we enter into this work, we're not need to be immobilized by mm-hmm. the breadth yes. of 32 yes. million people, exactly. rather catalyzed and galvanized that we are aligning ourselves with the Lord himself mm-hmm. and fighting for Because people. the rescue can be one life at a time. Yeah, absolutely. And Gary Haugen has been on the show in the past. I've had a chance to interview Gary here awesome. previously mm-hmm. in his story. I mean, you know, he was with the State Department, mm-hmm. and his first encounter was in Rwanda after mm-hmm. the genocide when he, mm-hmm. he went there and had to document mm-hmm. all the cases for the Justice Department. He got woke, you right. know. <laughs> That's what happened, you know. And that was the birth, really, of International Justice Mission. One of your team members, you can say that in the family of those who are fighting human trafficking, mm-hmm. such an important part of the work that they do, along with what you guys are doing. Well, we opened up these stats with a wider problem around the world 
which you've mentioned, you've traveled to mm-hmm. Cambodia, you've mm-hmm. been in some of these places. Let's talk about the stronghold, Morgan, that you see right here in our community that mm-hmm. maybe those listening are oblivious to, don't even realize that what's going on right now here in our city. Yeah, I mean, I think that my biggest thing that is hard to tackle in my brain is that we're dealing with everyday hard life and poverty, and we're dealing with dysfunctional families. So I think that if we tackle to the core of that, if we tackle the dysfunctional families, if we tackle having fathers in the kids' lives and moms in the kids' lives, that I think that when it comes down to human trafficking, the core issue is vulnerability. And so if the family unit is strong and um, healthy and aware of their trauma and their triggers, then I think that we can tackle this horrible situation in a much greater way. The National Incidence Studies of Missing, Abducted, Runaway, and Throwaway Children reports that one in four children who run away from home are approached for commercial sexual exploitation within 48 hours of running away. That's so staggering to think about, ladies. Yeah, I mean, I I think it just goes back to what I just said. It's just, you know, if the the family unit was healthy and loving and supportive, then we wouldn't have kids running away and looking for love in other places. I think we just have to do a better job at loving on our kids and, and and building them up for success and success not outwardly but internal and emotionally so they won't have to um, go out in the streets and look for that and fill that void in their heart. In 2010 of November, a multi-agency investigation that was uncovered by the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation led to a federal indictment of 29 individuals who were affiliated with Somali gangs in the Middle District of Tennessee. They were arrested for trafficking girls as young as 12 across the U.S., including Tennessee. Parents, as you say, we've got to watch our children. I think we do, but I think, too, um, if you don't mind, I, I would also like to point out that Yes, in 2010, the TBI brought that Somali case, uh, and it went through um, the justice system for years, and our partners at Enslavery walked alongside those survivors in um, in unbelievable ways. But I think that it's really important that we also say that in 2011, here in Memphis, T-Rex Yarbrough, a Memphis man, was convicted of federal charges of uh, 10 counts of human trafficking for... Um, also trafficking young Memphis girls across the United States, um, having children by them, ensuring that he maintained that control because their children would be held here in Memphis in Bartlett, in a Mm -hmm. home in Bartlett with his mother as he moved their moms across the United States. And so um, then also in 2011, our uh, federal counterparts here in Memphis, U.S. US Attorney's Office brought and convicted Kayla Bray, who's a young woman at the time. She was 19 years old, um, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, also from Bartlett. Mm -hmm. I'm pointing that out because I think that not only does it happen here, Mm -hmm. as we need to funnel that down, Mm -hmm. but we also have to have to acknowledge the fact that it actually doesn't often look like this extreme case of a Somalian network, but it is a person next door Mm -hmm. who somehow grooms a neighbor. Kayla was convicted of of trafficking her two friends. So she was 19 years old, a young girl, and she trafficked two of her younger friends from Bartlett. 
I think that it's very important if we're going to shed light on it that we really bring that awareness to the full scope of it. And that's why I brought you ladies in today, so we could put that full scope on all of this. And according to the U.S. Department of Justice, there are girls as young as five and six years old in the U.S. that are forced to do sexual acts for economic gain by their pimp. Now, are we seeing girls that young in our city in the same circumstances? I can't speak for our city, Memphis, but over the years in in different cases, I say that because I'm still learning Memphis and just getting aware of everything. But I think that over the time that I've been doing this work, I mean, one case that comes to mind, I had a little girl at three years old being trafficked. Three years, three years old. Oh. Um, her mom was a bottom, and and so she was trafficking her kids um, in the life with uh, the pimp that was over her. And so, yeah, I mean, statistically 13, but I mean, it goes all the way till they pop out. I do want to clarify too, Morgan used the word bottom. That's mm-hmm. kind of a slang term for what probably in a court case would be referred to as the victim offender, like the mm-hmm. intersect between someone who has been victimized, but is turned offender to lessen her own victimization as helping to control, helping to contribute. Mm -hmm. So that's the slang term for that internal second-tier controller in a pimp or a trafficker stable. And I will say, yes, I mean, to everything that Morgan just said, I think our youngest referral last year was in that three- to seven-year-old range. It was a mom in one of the counties in West Tennessee because we're actually first responders to the 21 counties of West Tennessee. So it was up around Jackson, Tennessee, a mom who was exploiting her kiddos Mm -hmm. and so her younger kiddo is in that like three to five seven range Mm -hmm. and I will say that that's what we had in Cambodia as well I think that that's the reality is that oftentimes when it gets to that young it is going to even be primarily the caretaker because the caretaker uh, his or herself has likely fallen into their own vulnerabilities and that's that's what they have to leverage as these other people that they're in in the charge of. And then we also have to acknowledge, like, one of our other clients over the last few years, we were referred her when she was in her mid-20s, but her trafficking started when she was five. Five and years so old. And yeah. so she came into our services, into our safe house at about 25. So she had been trafficked originally by mom and uncle, and then eventually by someone in the community, then eventually by an, a boyfriend. Rachel, so she already had 20 years of this lifestyle. Before you met her. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it, and she was only 25 years old. And I would say even according to statistics, she had already beat the odds yeah. because that other statistics show, studies show that someone lasts in this lifestyle about seven years. So the average lifespan for yes. someone at the point of being yes. victimized that first time is only about seven years. And so mm-hmm. if someone started at 12, even if we get to know her at 18 or 19, then in theory, she's already beat the odds. Mm-hmm. Yes. And yet that's just the beginning of her journey to acknowledging trauma, acknowledging triggers and really walking through to restoration. Also, surfing the internet where teens obviously it's so dangerous. These mobile apps, social media apps, mm-hmm. is that's another way mm-hmm. that kids are getting lured, right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. The reality with social media for any of us is that it seems safe. 
because yeah. we're not looking at someone. And so the things that people say even in their anger on social media seem appropriate because they don't have to look at someone's face and their affect as they say these things. And so when vulnerable children especially are expressing their vulnerabilities because they feel like they have an audience, mm-hmm. then someone who wants to exploit those vulnerabilities has all of that information at their fingertips. And yeah. so for yeah. them to, I think I already mentioned words like grooming and mm-hmm. seasoning that that's kind of that recruitment aspect of a trafficker might see that a young teen has expressed things like my mom doesn't understand me my dad is never home my dad works really hard thinking that he's providing for the family but what I really want is for him to come to my softball game or my basketball game etc and so a trafficker if he's wanting to exploit that teenage girl just has to play on those. Mm-hmm. Well, yes. I'll come and watch your basketball yeah. game. Where do you play? I'll, I'll come and sit in the stands and nobody has to know about it. It can just be our secret mm-hmm. and I'll just be your secret cheering section. Mm-hmm. And so he's already playing on her desire to be welcome, to be loved, to have community, to be validated and valued. He can already play like, well, we don't want your parents to feel bad. So mm-hmm. let's just keep it our secret. So he's also already beginning that process of isolating her mm-hmm. from her family and her other support systems. I, I've told you, I think, Rachel, in the past, I had a family member who was in college that was groomed that way, was carried emotionally along, became an addict with drugs. Because oftentimes, right. isn't that a part of it, too? They can keep you in enslavement through drugs. Mm-hmm. I think that some traffickers, some pimps absolutely use yeah. drugs for sure. Some traffickers or pimps pride themselves on not having to use anything, but mm-hmm. their emotional ties and toying. Mm-hmm. Some of them control via physical violence. There's a lot of different control mechanisms and drugs is absolutely one of the most used ones because it is the easiest. If someone is in a stupor, they don't have eyes to see yes. how they're being exploited. What are some of the steps that Restore Corp uses to help get these girls and women rescued out of this entrapment. I'm going to quote someone from Homeboy Enterprises, Father Greg Boyle, and part of my response. I made sure to be kind of meditating on this because even that word rescue, we actually as an organization, we try to stay far away from because we think that utilizing the idea of we are rescuing them doesn't give honor to the victim's personal agency in their own strength, in their own identity. Mm-hmm. Um, as Father Greg Boyle writes about Homeboy Enterprises, which is a gang reduction uh, organization originally in L.A. but is now international, he says Homeboy receives people. It doesn't rescue them. In being received rather than rescued, gang members, because that's their audience, and I would say survivors of human trafficking, come to find themselves at home in their own skin. Homeboy's message is not you can measure up someday. Rather, it is who you are is enough. And when you have enough, Mm -hmm. you have plenty. In this effort, we are always paying attention and are obedient to that. The word obey has its origin in listening. It is difficult to truly and deeply listen. When a homeboy is sitting in front of my desk, the mantra on a continuous loop in my head is stay listening. Another handy one is now, here, this, here, like H-E-R-E. Listen here, H-E-R-E, and now and only to this person. And so I think that really the first thing that we strive as a culture in our organization to to do is to just be fully present with the survivor for him or her to see that he or she has strength, Mm -hmm. that she has resilience, 
that she is already her, a world changer in her own mm-hmm. right. Because as we even already mentioned about that young woman who came to us at 25, she has endured more in her first 25 years of life than most of us mm-hmm. will ever in 90. Yes. And, uh, and so for us to communicate as a team as if we're the rescuer. And two, ladies, that intrinsic value as a human being created in the image of God. Mm-hmm. That personhood, letting that shine. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, and that you are valued. You know, mm-hmm. you are valued because mm-hmm. God created you. Going back to where Rachel was reading, come to find themselves, there's so many different ways we help our survivors come to find themselves. Logistically, through our caseworkers, um, our care coordinators, they help with resources, wraparound resources. Um, we have a residential program that um, if there's a survivor that come into our care um, and they need a residential support, they come and we provide a bed and food and clothing, other emotional support for that survivor. And then also just when it comes down to big picture, creating awareness and prevention. We go out to the community. We we talk to however many people we need to talk to um, because, like you said earlier, there's still tons of people in this world that don't even know that human trafficking exists. Yes. Um, so, and then Rachel, just so amazing with um, changing legislation in Tennessee. Um, over the past couple of years, few years, being able to change 40 laws um, in Tennessee. So I think there's boots on the ground work that we can do, but also big picture things that um, is necessary as well. Because I like to say that the pimps are sometimes more, I wouldn't say they're smarter, but they're more organized. And if we could lay down our own selfish desires and um, partner with others and collaborate with others. I think that we can be more organized than the pimps. Ladies, our time has slipped away, and we've only just begun. (laughs) (laughs) Let me ask you, is there a way that you can hang around and we can do a second show? We could do another half hour and have a part two to expand our conversation because we've got more to talk about. I think it's important that we do that. And if you could do that, we're going to end this program, and then we're going to say hello in the next program, okay? That sounds great. Awesome. All right, but before we say goodbye, for those to find out more information, volunteer financially to help support the work that you're doing. Absolutely. Uh, give us information how to do that. The easiest is probably go to our website, restorecore.org. So that's R-E-S-T-O-R-E-C-O-R-P-S dot org. And there's a donate tab right there, which uh, absolutely... Um, that's one of the most critical parts of being a part of this. As I mentioned, not everyone might be called to vocationally uh, do this work, but if we are in the body of Christ, we are called to ransom the captive. And so that's uh, a good on-ramp for anyone. Um, And then, of course, volunteering. You can click through uh, ways to get involved. I think that that's actually what the tab says on our website. So you'll find Lonnie Doctor, our volunteer coordinator, her email right there for you to be able to start it off. All right, listen, we're going to say goodbye. You hang around, and we're going to do another show. All right? right. Thank you. Friends, that's all the time we have on today's edition of Mid-South Viewpoint. Thanks for joining us. I'm Byron Tyler. We'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.